The Suicide Prevention Show is where you are, and we're grateful that you're here. We are waking up the world with the power of positivity on a mission making suicide, especially teen suicide, a thing of the past. And we were talking about the four levels of suicide risk, and we'll be addressing them over the, over the show in the different segments. Level one is pure prevention. You don't even know there's an edge. Level two is what we call conditional risk. You're, you're aware that there's an edge and it's a scary place to be. And there are a lot of intervention programs that help. Level three is extreme risk, acute risk. You don't want to be here, but if you are here, we've got help for you. If someone you love is struggling with suicidal thoughts, and I do mean struggling, they are in acute risk. Here's my go-to guy, Aaron Huey. We're gonna be busting the tough love myth when it comes to how to parent a suicidal child. And so without further ado, Aaron, join me in the studio. Yay! Don't we love magic? I love it. Hi, Jackie. It's so good to be back. Thank you so much. I, I so enjoy talking to you. Oh, Aaron, I am just delighted to see you. And of course, you're fully branded, you know. <laughs> shameless I... self-promotion is the name <laughs> of the game. <laughs> so shameless self-promotion, absolutely here. Absolutely true. We, and we need to do it. Everyone needs to be willing to shamelessly promote what you are proud of, what you are dealing, what you are striving toward, what you're putting effort into. Yes, I'm going to have to get myself a, a shirt. You know, I don't know what mine's going to say yet, but I like yours. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And I just moved into my new office. That's why the walls are bare. Like, like I literally just got this system plugged in and I'm still working out the kinks. So I hope <laughs> I sound okay because I'm actually on my power beats instead of my uh, big microphone set. Well, so far so good. And we can Perfect. let people put into the chat to make sure that they can hear you because it's always good to do a sound check. Wonderful. Live shows, we need audience participation on sound check, you know? <laughs> So you've got your own show. So let's talk a little bit about that. So Beyond Risk and Back is a podcast that I began primarily for the families, uh, the parents of children who are in our facility. I run an adolescent uh, treatment center, mental health and dependency treatment center. We deal with self-harm, uh, suicidality, mental health issues, dependency issues, whether it's drugs, video games anything like that, ages 12 to 17. And we really understand that no child is broken. We needed to get the parents the intervention. We needed to get the parents support. We needed to get the parents doing their work because you can, any child can make a change and even then begin to sustain the change through daily practice. But then if they go home to an environment that did not change, then they will go back to the way things were. So our primary intervention model is, yes, the kid comes and lives at the facility for four months minimum, 
but then the parent has to do their work. And to us, that looked like the parent weekend, the passes, the Sunday dinners, the, the uh, weekly family therapy, the biweekly family therapy support calls, uh, which well, I'm leading one of them tonight. But then myself and the executive director both have a podcast that is constant barrage of information. There can be no excuse for a parent not to learn what the child is learning in recovery so that that recovery can extend back home. Beyond Risk and Back, my podcast, uh, then all of a sudden took on an international audience, which I am extremely grateful for and filled with gratitude because we became number one in Australia, number three in the UK, number three in Canada, and are doing quite well here in the US. But there's a lot more parenting podcasts in the US to compete with here. But nonetheless, the podcast took off. We're riding a wonderful wave with it. And it's just another way to make sure parents know everything that my staff knows, that the clinicians know, that the experts in the world of adolescent recovery, development, and mental health, parents need that information. My job now, after having 20 years in the business of recovery and mental health with children, is to help parents prevent having to send their child to a recovery center exactly like mine. That is being the pound of cure and the ounce of prevention. And ethically, that's why we do what we do is because we want to help it not get worse, but to get better before it gets worse. There you go. And you said a lot in that thing, in that little rant, we're going to unpack some of that. Let's get unpacking. Yeah, I love it because what you're really trying to do is put yourself out of business. Yes. I, I, I mean, isn't that what the 12th step is, is to take that message of hope to people that are still struggling. And if, and if you do that, and if everybody takes that 12th step where we take the message of hope to someone who's still suffering, struggling, a family that still goes, I think I'm alone and I don't know what to do. If we're starting the free Facebook groups and we're getting the, the summits and the podcasts and everything like that, putting ourselves out of business, what a great problem to have. And unfortunately, we are in no danger of that. And that's the hardest thing to say about the, the industry we're in. My phone is ringing off the hook. My coaching practice has exploded. Our facility is brimming and it's, it's devastating. That's well said. And it is well said that the, right now, I mean, you know, when we first met, I was talking about the COVID cocoon. And, you know, the meltdown that has to happen inside a cocoon and how ill-equipped we were as far as mental and emotional resilience to be able to handle having everything deconstruct in our world. Now I'm not talking about the COVID cocoon so much. I am talking about the COVID compression because this thing is pressing in on us from all sides and any cracks are being just exploited in very dangerous ways. Yeah. And I'm going a little nuts with the numbers. And I don't know if you heard this, but what we've done at the society is we're starting to gather real-time data so that we can put together petitions to get the government to start funding pure prevention programs. Because it's one thing, and we need all the programs in intervention. Yeah. We need preventative programs where we can get the power of positivity into the pathway of people because they don't even know that these things exist. And right. we've had experts from multiple fields talking about this. So we're going to go to the fact that 
personal development got kind of a bad name and self-help went to shelf help because people were buying books and tapes and never reading them. Let's face it, that's what happens, which is why what you're doing is so powerful because you are absolutely not leaving it up to um, the whim of a parent. It can't be. And look, I think I think what's whether, you know, the COVID crisis, the COVID compression, you know, this 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 experience of the last year is there's a few things. Number one, this is what the world looks like when you remove the feeling of safety from everybody, not just children, adults, mm -hmm. businesses. This is what the world looks like when people don't feel inherently safe. Number two, the behavior of the children is the language of the family. And that's the, the language of the children is the behavior of the family. The child will find some way to express what's going on at a very core root family level. And right now, depression, anxiety, suicidality, drug use, video game addiction, self-harm has skyrocketed because people are terrified. They don't feel safe, not mentally, not physically, not emotionally, not spiritually, and not financially. And any one of those five is traumatic. To remove the safety of a, a spiritual safety, financial safety, emotion, any one of those five, it can be traumatic to an adult. Take all five away and watch what happens to a child. That's what we're seeing. And it's, it's really hard to deal with. It's really, it's, it's hard to get calls from parents saying a year ago, they had straight A's. I caught them cutting. I caught them trying to commit suicide. I found drugs in my house. They're playing 18 hours of video games. Within a year, we've gone from zero to 60 from things were going okay to maladaptive coping strategy going beyond risk and not just being at risk, mm -hmm. beyond risk. It's uh, the, the amount of families I'm working with right now where CPS is involved in the family dynamic, it's, it's never been like this before. Okay, let's get clear. CPS, Child Protective Services. That's correct. In Colorado, we call them CPS, Child Protective Services. Okay, it's, I think it's the same in, in most states, but I always explain acronyms just in case. That's a good idea because the alphabet gang, they can, they can have their own private little club and leave parents out in the cold. You know, that's a, again, Jackie, that's exactly why I did this is because a parent, you know, something happens and you take your kid to the hospital and they said, you got to send him to this acute unit. And then they start throwing their terms. Oh, I think your kid needs residential and I want to make sure they're doing DBT and EMDR and try C CBT. And parents are like, are those supplements? Are, is that a, and, and this, this cannot be a closed culture. Mental health cannot be a closed culture anymore. You know, one of the things you said, the, the, the breaking the myth of tough love, this has to start with parents. This has to start with the fact that when a psychiatrist wants to medicate your child, you have to push back and you have to push back immediately. Not because you think you're wrong, not because you think you know better, but because you don't exactly know what they're asking for. And these psychiatrists have been giving out pills left and right. They've spent 15 minutes with your kid. They're looking at a basic overview of past evidence evidential behavior and saying this is what i think and these it is it is no longer time to just turn the trust over to the experts in the mental health field we have to disseminate the information and parents you have to 
speak the culture, the language of recovery before you let your child get involved in it. And if you're learning on the way to the hospital to talk to the psychiatrist, so be it. But no more letting the experts make the calls because the experts are being, bless their hearts, bless the amount of research and, and intellect they have, but they only make their payday if they are doing what the insurance companies are telling them to do and they are giving them the drugs the pharma companies want them to give. And that is not good enough for someone you love so much you would be willing to go into a second mortgage to help. You cannot just trust. Don't listen, your child needs EMDR. Find out what it means, go home, look it up, Get take the time, you have the time, you may not have the energy, and that I understand. When energetically your, your child has, has kept you from sleeping, from eating well, from exercising, from tending to your adult relationships, you may not have the energy, but no one else is gonna take the kind of time, and more importantly, the energy for your child's health and well-being as you are, no one will. And so this is why we do these summits and these podcasts and these shows, because it's not enough that you have an expert telling you things. You have to have your support group. You have to have your therapeutic intervention. You have to have your training. You have to do your DBT, CBT, EMDR. You got to find out what it means and you got to do it your dang self. That's tough love. And that's dispelling the myth of you've got to do something different for your child. That's not accurate. What is accurate is that you have to do something different. Stop there. Start there. Do something different for yourself. Take care of yourself mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually, and financially. Do that with your marriage. Then and only then are you qualified and able to have the energy to take care of your child's mental, physical, spiritual, emotional, and financial health. You have to reverse the order. And this is a do it now kind of thing. This is why we host the show is we bring the best experts we can to give the support in all of those areas because each of us is ultimately responsible for ourselves first. And this is where our kids are learning when they see us giving and giving and giving and giving and not taking care of ourselves first, they're getting a very distorted view of how life actually works. They're not getting the lessons in mental and emotional resilience that they need. They're not learning how to keep their equilibrium. You know, we, we, we forget how kids learn. Like, like these, these children know your value system. How old are they? Well, guess what? That's how many years they've been studying your value system. So if you have a 17-year-old kid, you don't have to tell them what you believe. They know what you believe, but they're watching what you do. And if you're not taking care of your own mental health, but telling them they have to. If you're not taking care of your financial health, but trying to pass on the message of how important it is to save money, they're gonna do what you do. I have a 25 and a 26 year old. The worst thing about them is watching them copy our, our, our habits from when they were in their formidable years. Like that's the hardest part is when I see what they do with money or to see, and I'm just like, what can I say? They learned how to do it from me. We think that there is some magic phrase or statement or website we can point them to that's suddenly going to change their maladaptive coping strategy from 18 hours of video games to focusing on homework and grades the next day because we said something pithy 
would, would really what is taking place is that we have to figure out what that, that's a short-term investment. That's day trading. Here's how I like to, if you think that something you do today is going to make a difference tomorrow in your child's life, you're day trading on your child's psyche. If you think that if you if you go to the gym for a week that your child's going to suddenly recognize the importance of, of daily exercise and a week later they're going to follow suit, uh, that's swing trading on your child's psyche. This is a lifelong investment. You want something to make sure that you save your child's life, then you're talking about you creating a habit every day of self-care. That when your child looks at you and says, well, you don't, that you actually do. That the less you say and the more that you express through your actions on taking care. When I say parents take care of yourself first, your adult relationship second, and your children third, because in that way you do your best work with your children, the long-term compounding interest investment of that strategy is your children prioritize self-care. That is what I'm seeing in my 25 and 26 year old is that they will get stuck into a certain rut and pull themselves out by saying, I need to go for a hike. I need to go skateboarding. We need to go camping because they tend to their well-being first. They put it above their relationships. They put it above their hobbies. But that's because my wife and I prioritize self-care. A maladaptive coping strategy. And I want to I be clear that when we're looking at a kid in at-risk behavior. Let's not talk about beyond risk yet. Let's talk about a kid who you're seeing their friend group change and the isolation starts. And suddenly they're listening to a different type of music. And suddenly they have a different attitude. And suddenly you smell smoke coming from the bedroom. And it's the first time you've got them smoking pot at home. And so those, that, those are at-risk behaviors. That is the beginning practice of a strategy that is meeting a need that is not being fulfilled elsewhere. One of five needs, safety, power, connection, freedom, or worth. One of those five needs is met by that maladaptive coping strategy. Oh, they smoke slow yeah. those down. Give me the five again. I, I, I can't write as fast as you talk. Go ahead. <laughs> five needs, five human needs, safety, power, connection, freedom, and worth. And yeah. Jackie, remember, those are also in developmental order. None of those others will, none of the four will develop properly if safety isn't in place. And that one goes all the way back in utero, right? So now here's what we do. We're we're at Aaron's facility. We're at Fire Mountain Residential Treatment Center. And Aaron is talking to the kids yet again, because in the past 20 years, he's asked this question to kids every single year. Why do you smoke? Why did you guys start smoking cigarettes? Because since you've been growing up, since you were in second grade, first grade, you've had posters on your school wall that says, don't smoke. Don't even start. Your clothes will smell. Your teeth will turn yellow. You, you'll lose your sense of taste. And by God, you'll get cancer and die. They have been growing up with those posters. They get middle school or high school and they start smoking. And I ask them, why do you smoke? What's the payoff, right? Aren't all human behaviors based on what it costs us and what we get from it? And whichever one's bigger, that's the direction we'll go, right? Aaron, how come you use drugs? Well, because when I was high, I was happy. When I was sober, I was sad. So now tell me why I should stop smoking drugs. Why, why should I stop smoking pot? 
when because when I do, I'm suicidal, I'm sad. But when I'm high, I'm happy. So this is what the kids say to us. Cost and payoff. Remember, cost and payoff. Why do you start why do you start smoking? The kids say, well, it's like you get a break from your life. Like you go outside and you hang out with a group of friends and you just talk. Now, Jackie, if I was a therapist, if I was a counselor or a psychiatrist, I'm a coach, I'm a parent coach, I'm a teen coach. But Jackie, if you came to me and said, oh my God, Aaron, I'm so stressed out. I have so many clients right now. They're hurting so badly. I just, I have not, I, I just, I cannot get a second to myself. I'd say, Jackie, 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 here's what you're going to do. You're going to take a break. You need to go outside. You need to get with a support group and be with some friends. And you know what, Jackie, I'm going to add a fourth one. I want you to start breathing really deep breaths. Now, Jackie, didn't I just describe smoking? You take a break, you go outside, you hang with friends, and you take deep breaths. It's a strategy to get needs met. What needs? Well, let's look. There's, there's safety, power, connection, freedom, and worth. What of those five needs gets met through smoking cigarettes? Okay, connection, right? Yeah. Uh, freedom, I get freedom from stress. I get to go outside and take a break, right? Mm -hmm. uh, safety. Right, it stimulates some things in my brain chemistry. Maybe power because my parents say you shouldn't smoke, and the police say you shouldn't smoke, and I smoke, and ooh, I've got power. Look, four needs are being met by smoking a single cigarette. Mm -hmm. So any strategy that your child is exhibiting right now, stop calling it a bad choice. It's a great choice. It's meeting a need. Is it a risky choice? You bet. And so instead of saying you need to start making good choices, I want you to start to understand parents why your child is making that choice. What need are they getting met? Better yet, the next time you are yelling at your kid because you disagree with how their value system is developing, take a second and recognize what need yelling meets. Power, freedom, safety, connection, worth because it's one of those. You see, psychology is only sick when we don't understand it. When we start to understand even the most maladaptive coping strategy, we start to understand the human psyche in the basics, in the very, very simple basics. So that's what we're looking for. How are they getting their needs met, especially during COVID time when nobody's getting safety met? Nobody's getting it met. It's a very big, very big discussion, Aaron, and a very valid point. And it's interesting about timing because this is what I realized about myself today was that the issue of not feeling safe is something that has been a pattern in my life. Okay. And while for me, I have felt safer in some respects during COVID, than I have in other periods of my life. And yet, it is not stable. You know, it doesn't feel stable anymore. And if is it you, sustainable? That's the question. Is, is your current strategy of safety sustainable without causing harm? So the, the boy, this is not an easy conversation. The power of this conversation to say if these needs are in order safety power connection freedom and worth and we have lost our sense of safety 
how do we get it back? Because that's a core need. That's right. And that's the therapeutic intervention. Right. That's that's because that's because when we see our children doing things to meet their need of safety, like smoking pot made me feel safe. How? Because I wasn't suicidal and my life wasn't in danger when I was high. You can break it down to that core, simple psychology. So how did you feel safe? Well, number one, there had to be an intervention on the behavior. The behavior, the cost of the behavior has to be inflated to the point that the body says, oh, wait, this doesn't feel safe. And you said it, Jackie, what you said is so important that it's you, you end up on shaky ground. My, my marijuana smoking had become so prolific that my marriage had ended because of it. Uh, I, custody with my daughter was being threatened because of it. I was living in the back of my truck at a rec center. And so that safety feeling was all of a sudden on shaky ground. And that's when rock bottom is rushing towards you, right? Is, is that's when you see, this is not sustainable. Like, I don't know how I'm gonna make it past this, this year. And so at some point, there was a group of people who showed up in my life to say, hey, now that that safety thing's not working, come on over here with us because none of us feel safe. So we're gonna all keep each other safe. Now that's a therapist. That's a counselor, that's a psychiatrist, that's a psychologist, that's a support group, that's a residential treatment center, that's a 12-step room, that's a smart room. That's a, it's a friend who you spill your guts to and say, I don't actually feel safe. And, and I need to check in with you on a regular basis to just talk about what's going on for me because I don't feel safe anymore. I don't even feel I'm isolated and alone. And for a minute that kept me safe, but now it doesn't. Cigarettes are giving me a cough. And now I think I might need to quit smoking, but I've got an addictive process. And that can, that's with anything. That's with mayonnaise. Mayonnaise on a sandwich is awesome. Mayonnaise every day is high cholesterol. And, and a heart attack waiting to happen, right? And anything can become a maladaptive coping strategy. You saying, oh, I've had such a hard day work and three glasses of wine, you're still sitting on the couch and Netflix goes, are you still there? Because we'll keep playing movies if you are, but if not, we're going to shut, like if Netflix is asking if you're still watching, you've watched too long. <laughs> and that means you're in, a, you're in a maladaptive coping strategy. That, that you're you're trying to tune out at that level, right? It's one thing to go to the gym every day. It's another thing to spend three hours at the gym every day and started to exercise anorexia. But the the how do we get out of that? How do we start feeling safe? Nobody feels safe alone. That is a primal instinct. You did not inhabit the cave by yourself because the saber-toothed donkey would eat you while you're sleeping. You had to have someone watching your back and that has never changed. And not being able to see each other, that's been hard on everybody. And that doesn't cheapen your experience. Those of you who are listening or watching your kids, understanding that your kids developmentally are at the stage of connection that is, that is what has been sacrificed for this COVID thing, is that we are now going to start seeing developmental delays because your children have been going to school online. Now, I know that sounds like a resilience issue, but it's not. It's actually a developmental issue. Resilience is your kid being hurt by this thing, falling down, crying, and getting back up. And if they can't get back up, 
there is no lecture, oratory, or amount of yelling that will force your kid up. This is a heart issue. It's a brain development issue. And you've got to step down and lend a hand, especially as life and limb comes on the line. You cannot, this is not about willingness, parents. This is about capability. Kids are at risk now, developmentally because they've been isolated. And let's be honest, online schools worked out for a lot of kids. There there is a 25% of the population that this is how they should be learning. But then after they still need social connection because connection is number three in needs, safety, power, connection. Freedom in our 20s worth when we're adults, but we have all those needs at all times as well. So developmentally speaking, And this is a conversation that I actually had with the director of programs at an organization that does social, emotional, emotional intelligence training for kids using games. And she is concerned that we're looking at permanent damage to the, you know, to the children that are in this time that as what you just described as developmental delays. And now it's one thing to be concerned And it's another thing to say, okay, what are the things that we can do that are going to help? And the first thing is get yourself taken care of. I mean, I love that. It always comes back to that with you. It is always the lesson that I need to hear, the message that I need from you. It all starts with take care of yourself. You add take care of your adult relationships. And I'm going to just point out that that is fulfilling the need for connectedness. Yes. It's not different. It's just highlighting this very critical piece for adults that we need that sense of connectedness as well. And then, then it is connect with your kid. Yeah. And it's not easy. You know, one of the things that's so important about the connecting with the adult relationships second, tending to those adult relationships second, is because there is a idea that our emotion, and this is, this is because of a lack of emotional intelligence, but emotions are not leveraged. They are not consequence, and parents have forgotten that. Is that, you know, we get angry and we express that anger towards our children. And I'm not talking about hitting and I'm not talking about anything like that. I am talking about yelling because you're scared. I'm talking about intensity because you're angry. Those things are not consequence. Those things are not leverage. And when we are trying to get someone to change their behavior and we Go to leverage our emotional experience of them. Oh, Jackie, I'm so mad at you. You know what? You make me mad and you better not do that again or so help me. Go to your room right now. Like you're not going to focus, Jackie, on what you did. You're going to focus on my intensity. You're going to focus on my anger. You're going to focus. And the reason why adult relationships are second is because Jackie, if I'm having trouble with my kid and I call you on the phone and I go, oh my God, Jackie, I'm going to strangle my children. And you're like, oh no, what happened? And you're like, I, I swear she snuck out. I, she got brought home by the police. She was, she was smoking pot. What am I going to do, Jackie? I have not slept in three days. You're like, oh, Aaron, are you okay, hon? And oh, no, I'm not. And I may start to cry. And we work it out together as adults. 
so that when it's time for me to talk to my child, I say, hey, when you snuck out the other night, I was really upset. And that's why I haven't talked about this for a few days. And I talked to my friend Jackie and she's got a ton of support for me. And I've actually started taking classes with her. And she's got the summit that I'm gonna do the whole summit because I really need some help with this. Because I, I, I get so emotional when rules are broken in a house that I realize that I'm actually not connecting with you before I'm just trying to correct you. And so now kiddo, I'm gonna work on connection before correction. And there's gonna be a consequence for you sneaking out and getting brought back by the police the other night. But I wanna make sure I deliver that consequence with love and empathy because being a teen sucks and it's hard. And I know drugs solve a lot of issues for people and I'm really scared. So I just want you to know I love you and we're gonna be talking about consequences tomorrow. Now that is something that a child can listen to. That is something that a child can hear and say, okay, I'm going to get in trouble because they're calm. And then I go back and I say, okay, Jackie, I told him, now I got some ideas for consequences. Let me roll them off you. And you and I talk about the consequences and you blow holes in my consequences. And thank God I did that with my adult friends before I just went and went Bleh, with some emotional barf all over my children. Because again, at some point, my emotions are no longer going to be leveraged for these children. They're going to be teenagers and I'm going to yell and they're going to yell back and I'm going to cuss and they're going to cuss back. And as an adult, I'm going to be the one who's amplifying the behavior, not the child. And if any adult out here thinks that they can say something as provocative and as messy as a child, then you don't understand that They've been living with your value system for a long time. They know all your triggers. And unless you accelerate into violence, they can outdo you emotionally. And we got to stop teaching them that emotions have leverage like that, that emotions are power, because that's not emotional intellect. What emotions are, how I feel about things. And that's my business. If I say, Jackie, the thing you said to me yesterday, I, I got really upset and I was really hurt. But then I went and dealt with that. And I really dig being with you, Jackie. So I don't want to let what happened yesterday get between us. So I just want to be able to talk that through. Is this a good time for you? Like those are emotionally intelligent adults talking. And we got to show our children how to do that. So that's why self-care. Then tend to your adult relationships. Utilize this support team. Then go take care of your kids. And if it takes a couple days, so be it. Absolutely. That is well said. And I loved that every single bit of it. And it just wishing that I could come up with a magic wand, Aaron, and make parenting easier. It was a struggle for me raising a suicidal child. It was a struggle when I realized that she was still suicidal as an adult and we had avoided the conversation. It was only the journey to the TEDx talk that I gave in January that made it where we had the conversation about what was really happening for her the day that she first tried to kill herself. Right. My speaking coach, you'll appreciate this. This is the adult brain. My speaking coach says, you have to tell the story of that day. 
And I'm like, there's no story to tell. It was just an ordinary day. I have no memory of anything that was going wrong. And then I got, he says, can you ask your daughter? And I'm like, okay. And I got on the phone with my daughter, Stephanie. And I'm like, I honestly don't remember what was going on that day. And she says, well, I do. And it was the shopping. And it seems silly to say it now, but it was the shopping. And that's what's so hard as a parent. It doesn't have to be something big that will tip them over the ledge if they're near the edge. And we don't know which of our kids are near the edge because they're really good at hiding signs. Yeah, so they're- You know, what, I, think, I think something that that therapist said to you is the key to everything you're saying, Jackie. And that is tough love is loving your kids so much you're willing to have the tough conversations, the ones you don't want to have. The mm -hmm. ones where my daughter and I talked about how did this how did this body dysmorphia thing start? And she said, when we were on the hike, dad, do you remember what you said? And oh yeah, I remember it. I remember it like, because the glare after I said what I said, I'll never forget it and I'll never forgive myself for it. And, and this is the, that's a tough conversation to have, but, the, but love, tough love means I love so much I can be tougher than the feelings that are gonna come up. And that's, that's what you have with, with your daughter is that you loved her enough to have the tough conversation, to sit down with your kids and saying, are you suicidal? I've been noticing a lot of depressive behaviors and some signs of, of depression. And I just want to make sure you're okay. Are you suicidal at all? And you don't, you don't sugarcoat it. You don't beat around the bush. You don't, you don't bring cupcakes so that you can smear everything with frosting. You ask the damn question, do you have a plan to hurt yourself? And if you do, kiddo, there's a level of help that's beyond the help that I can provide that we're going to go get together mm -hmm. because I'm scared. I don't want to lose you. And I'm scared of your depression. I don't know what depression is. You know, do you realize what saying that to a child can mean that you don't even know what depression is? Because I'll tell you, parents, depression is not a feeling. Your child does not feel depressed. That is not, let's talk about emotional intelligence right here. I feel depressed is actually not a feeling. I feel sad. I feel lonely. Depressed is what's going on in the brain. The brain chemistry is depressed. It is depressed chemistry. The ability for the brain to produce the feel-good chemicals has been depressed, suppressed compressed and so now the brain is diverting energy to breathing heart beating that's why they haven't showered that's why they can't get out of bed it's not a bad attitude depression is not a bad attitude anxiety is not a bad attitude if you want your child to become more resilient then show them resilience because resilience is letting your child fail repeatedly and that means great not with life, not with drugs, with grades. 
the, the resilience is my story of resilience is I, I got in the car after a hockey game and my dad said, how do you think you did? I was the goalie. I got scored on a lot. Oh, the referee didn't like the other team and they were cheating and they blah, 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 blah. And my dad slammed on the brakes of the car and he said, they scored on you because they are better than you. And if you want to be better than them, practice more than they do. And he started driving and I was butthurt. I cried because my dad was being mean, but I went home and I practiced. I'm not throw a mattress under your child's butt every single time, but damn it, when it comes down to depression and anxiety and suicidality and video game addiction and self-harm and drugs, you're past the mattress. This is life and limb level stuff and you have to swoop in you have to rescue they don't get a vote they don't get input on what you're going to do next and what you're going to do next is get them the help that they need because beyond risk behavior look at risk can go to green or go to red right that's that yellow light it can go to green and everything can be fine and we just had a scare or it can go to red and your kid's going to end up in treatment in jail or in the morgue Yep. Because that's where these issues go. Jails, institutions, and death. And as the owner of an institution, I can tell you when the child goes to red, they don't get a vote. They cannot, they cannot have a say on what's going to happen next. You've got to make the decision. If they deserve a say, they're not in red, which means life and limb is not at stake yet. They're making risky choices, but not deadly ones. That's how you know the difference. That's a really clear line that I think needs to be stated more and more. And so, Aaron, I so greatly appreciate you being here and sharing all of this with us. And I want to just drop into the chat what you have for everyone on this call, because not every kid... Yeah, we can't go out and go, are you red? Because kids aren't going to know what we're talking about. <laughs> and for some families, having the conversation about suicide has to have a script. And that's what yeah. we created in the Teen Suicide Prevention Society is the four-step script. And so that's available for everyone inside the society. What you've created is the sort of next step, which yes. is let's have a contract. And you don't have just a contract. You've got the whole workbook here. Yeah, so this, this family behavior contract is twofold. It's one that you use when the kid's in yellow or at-risk behavior, so we're not at life and limb yet. Maybe they've dabbled, maybe a toe's touched in, but it's out now. Or it's after prevention and treatment from red, so they're coming out of treatment program. The family behavior contract is essentially based on the old models of a child behavior contract, but the problem with child behavior contracts and the reason why they fail is because the family doesn't change. So therefore the child behavior contract looks like a new set of rules and a new set of punishments. And those don't work. Here's what works. Everybody in the family changes. Yes, everybody, the two-year-old and the 22-year-old at college. They, because if the 22-year-old's coming home to live in the summer, summer, they go under contract. Mom and dad are under contract. If there's separate households and you have an ex or a parenting partner who does not participate, then leave them out of it and create the form and structure for your house. But in a family behavior contract, 
And this is one that every single one of my parent coaches is, is coached through. It is part of my parent coaching process. And every family who comes, who sends their kid to my treatment center, Fire Mountain, is, uh, uh, it goes through the family behavior contract, but everybody goes through the change. Mom says, um, I will not be binge watching TV anymore. And uh, my phone will be in the kitchen on the charger by 9 p.m. Dad says, I will no longer be using work as a way to disassociate from the family. And I will not bring my phone to the dinner table anymore. And my consequences of these things is that if I don't do that, I have to ride my bike to work for two weeks. And mom says, and my consequence is that I've got to to do two yoga classes a day instead of just one. And you come up with consequences and you come up with rewards for the, for the changes that the parents make, for the changes that the two-year-old makes, for the changes that the 22-year-old makes, and of course, your kiddo who's really struggling. No child can look at the family system and say, oh crap, I'm the reason we're broken. And if I change my behavior, we will all be happy. No child is responsible at that level for a systemic failure. Children's behaviors are the family language being spoken out loud. The family language has to change, not the child's behavior. The child's behavior will follow. So the family behavior contract will guide the parents through the entire process, the damaging admission process, an MVE process, and a template on how to write it in such a way that we're actually also preparing children to learn about how contracts work in the real world. It's okay, a so there was fun an acronym process. in there. Hold it, you gotta spell out the acronym that was in the middle of that. So say it again. It's got the three components that you just listed off. Oh, you caught me on an acronym of MVE, mere validate, empathize. Very good. Nice catch, Jackie. Thank you. Um, and it, it is it is a the entire coaching process, the entire workbook will take you through step by step. And uh, if you have questions beyond it, I have videos of me teaching that course to parents whose children are in our facility that I'll be happy to email to you directly. Oh, that would be awesome. I would so love to have them available in the society. So okay. thank you. Yeah, get those to me. We'll make them available in the society. We will um, create some availability to make it easy for people to access. Um, we're actually going to be taking the society app-based, and so there'll be a lot more availability on people's phones. I, I got a guy who's doing some app work for us that's just amazing, and we are gathering more and more resources to help make this movement more and more visible so that people know that you exist before they need you. If we can get people talking about this family contract before their kid is at beyond risk or even at risk, we can prevent the lights from ever going from green. And right. that's my mission in the world, Aaron. You specialize in an area where God bless you. Talk about where angels fear to tread. Okay. I mean, because you're having the talk about tough conversations. You're having the tough conversations with the parent about it's not the kid that's broken. Yeah. What if we could have these conversations before they had these consequences? That's the world that I imagine is that parents get the instruction book before they become parents. Wouldn't that have been a lovely thing? Be incredible. And that's emotional intelligence to it recognize is. that no one 
family member's behavior is responsible for the entire family's happiness. One might be affecting everybody, but they are not responsible to, that's like the lizard telling the eagle to stop hunting so the lizard can live happy. The eagle's gonna do what the eagle's gonna do. The lizard has to grow a prefrontal cortex, which is not gonna happen in the, but that's the limbic brain, right? That's, that's yeah. our survival brain. Mm -hmm. So you just have to come forward into the prefrontal cortex, make yourself happy, tend to your adult relationships, and then go take care of your kids. And realize that your kids don't have a prefrontal cortex that's developed yet. Again, emotional intelligence training at its best right there. There we go. And <laughs> thank you so very, very much for all that you do and for being willing to be here and help get these messages out to the people who don't even know that they need them. Jackie, my dear, anytime, just send me an email and I'll Zoom link. I love the sound of my voice, so I'll be there talking. <laughs> <laughs> Hugs. Mm. Hugs back. Thank you so much.